0: The following podcast contains content of a highly graphic nature, listener discretion is advised. The material covered is based on first-hand accounts and publicly available information. In producing this podcast, every effort has been made to show respect to the victims and their families. Support for this episode comes from the country's leading mapping technology and services provider, Esri Australia. To learn more about how Esri Tech is making a difference in crime analysis and public safety, head to Esri Australia. That's ESRIAustralia.com.au slash crime.
1: Elderly are being preyed upon by serial predators.
0: I'm Tori Shepherd, and this is Mapping Evil with Mike King.
1: This is a serial killer who some people think is responsible for maybe 13 murders.
0: The podcast that explores the geographic footprint behind crimes of horrific natures.
1: It was still a process of digitally putting a pin on the map and just by visualizing the location, they would have started to see some patterns emerging. He would put them in their bed and make it look like it was a natural cause death and no autopsy was performed. So he gets away with it.
0: Episode four, Twilight Zones. He said, I only have
1: one choice. I would have to kill my mother so I don't break her heart. Then I could kill my brother-in-law. That's the psychopathy of a serial killer.
0: Mike King has spent his life exploring the darker side of humanity. He's trained with members of the FBI to become a world-renowned criminal profiler. He's also written multiple books, runs his own YouTube channel, and has pioneered the use of geographic information system technology in law enforcement. Over the years, Mike has sat face-to-face with abusers, rapists and murderers, to try and understand how they choose their victims and why. Today we're going to talk about an unusual breed of predator, one whose crimes specifically target the most vulnerable, elderly members of our society. So we're going to start with Daniel Ray Troyer. You met him in prison. Tell us what Troyer had done and what it was like meeting him.
1: Daniel Troyer was really interesting because this is a serial killer who some people think is responsible for maybe 13 murders. There are eight that I'm aware of that he committed. But the peculiar thing about his particular victim selection process was that he looked for elderly women. And there were a number of reasons that he did that. One was that they were more easy to control, more easy to isolate. But there are also some darker reasons, and I had just completed a study for the Bureau of Justice with my partner at the time, Greg Cooper, where we had traveled throughout the United States talking to serial killers who were responsible for killing more than one elderly person in, in order to fit our criteria And we looked at the motivation behind the murders, the motivation behind the way in which they committed the murders, the victim selection process, and the personal interactions that the offenders had with the victims. And it's kind of weird to think about this idea of personal interaction, but it becomes very complex in this idea that elderly are being preyed upon by serial predators really is not that unique. We found that uh, there were a large number of those that we investigated here. And since that study, I've had contact with investigators all around the world who have investigated like cases.
0: Talk us through his build-up. I guess.
1: It's interesting as we think about it, because here he went out and he selects this 70-year-old quadriplegic But the reason he selected her was not because it was necessarily stimulating to him sexually or anything else. This was his first crime that we know of and the first that he has openly confessed to. But the thing that's so intriguing about this is that he selects someone who's physically handicapped and not able to fight back in any way. So it ensures his success in that particular case. I think the one thing that I found really interesting about his particular case was that we later learned from one of his cellmates in prison that he said the biggest mistake he made in that particular assault uh, was leaving her alive. And he said, quote, I will never leave a victim in a position to report me again. What a bone-chilling statement.
0: You're right. They just went right up and down my spine. So tell us a bit more about where he was. So we're talking Salt Lake City, Utah. He has a hunting ground. Is that how this works?
1: If we look at serial predators, kind of like we would look at animal predators, we uh, have to take into account that they're going to hunt where they're going to be successful. And that as long as they're successful and they're not being frightened off by law enforcement or for an animal, a predator of greater power, they're going to continue to hunt in an area they're familiar with and that they understand and they know the back alleys to. This individual was very much the same. He comes out of prison. The next thing he does almost immediately, and I think it was just within a matter of days, he seeks out a 54-year-old woman named Diesta Easthope. And the thing that was so intriguing about her, Tori, is that this woman was actually the mother of one of his cellmates in prison, a guy named Ronnie Easthope, who was dubbed the sugar house rapist and had gone to prison for the rest of his life.
0: And then they escalate. Is it as though, you, you know, if we take that hunting metaphor, so he's picked on the helpless prey, the quadriplegic that he assaults, comes out of prison, attacks somebody else... And then is he gaining in confidence? Is that what's happening? So he knows the area, he knows what he's looking for. Is he checking out women sort of walking along on walking sticks? How's he using the territory to work out who his next victim is?
1: That's really interesting because in Mrs. Easthope's case, he actually started fantasizing about her and actually killing her long before he was released from prison. He used to sneak into Ronnie's letters from his mother and read those and fantasize that he was having this relationship because he said quite frankly, that he never had a real family relationship himself. But as soon as he gets out of prison, the first thing he does is he goes and hunts her. And if we think back to the first victim that he had, I'll never leave a victim in a position to report me again. He goes inside after greeting her, telling her his name. She obviously lets him into the house because she thinks this is a cellmate of my son. She knew who he was because they had talked and conversed when there were prison visits he immediately attacks her in this blitz style attack he does it from behind which is really intriguing because as she's walking in uh, to the kitchen he comes up behind her and then he chokes her and kills her now one of the crazy things that Troyer did that really started to become a signature of his, was that he would then spend time with the victim once they were deceased, and he would undress them, oftentimes bathe them. There was clear indications of sexual activity and other things, but then he did something really intriguing. He would put them in their bed or in a bathtub and make it look like it was a natural cause death. In her case, he uh, put her in her bed, and just a short time later, family found her husband, and assumed that she had simply died in her sleep and uh, no autopsy was performed. So he gets away with it for a period of time until he later confesses.
0: And how did he actually get busted?
1: Well, so what happens is he then goes on and immediately assaults another woman, a 69-year-old woman named Thelma Blodgett. And again, in a very similar kind of thing, the family discovers her, this time in the bathtub, but her death, too, is treated like a natural cause death. But when they get her to the mortuary to start preparing her body for burial, thankfully, a mortician discovers strangulation marks on her neck, and that brings police back to then take this case and start to look at it as a homicide rather than just a natural causes death. Now, he's starting to really ramp up, and he's starting to really get moving, and we see him within seven days take his next victim, which is an 83-year-old woman named Drusilla Ovard. Again, in the very similar kind of display of activity, he blitz-style attacks. But now something really interesting is coming on because with Thelma Blodgett, he also strangles her from behind but his confidence is starting to grow. And when he confesses, he says he's now ready to start looking into the eyes of his victim as he kills him. And so now he's facing the victim head on and looking into their face as he strangles them to death. And then her body is found in the bathtub and she's treated as a natural cause death as well. This transition that we see though is really intriguing because we see him starting to gain confidence But more importantly, what we're starting to see is he's going from what we might consider to be a more organized approach to uh, starting to show some disorganization.
0: So you've got older people found dead. Eventually they work out, oh, this isn't just a natural death. How did all of that lead to him?
1: Actually, a burglary detective was looking at Daniel Troyer for a house burglary and Troyer at this time starts feeling the heat come on, and before I give you the answer to that, I want to just touch on two other deaths that he's responsible for. Where he then finds an 88-year-old woman named Ethel Lukow, but he sneaks over to her house kills her and leaves her, her death also is determined to be a natural causes death. And then again, less than a week later, he assaults another 88-year-old woman named Lucille Westerman, who's strangled and left for dead. But this poor gal actually lives for three weeks before she dies and uh, eventually dies. As all of this is happening, this burglary detective reaches out and corners Troyer and says to him, hey, I've got the goods on you. And he's thinking I got the goods on you for a house burglary. And Troyer thinks that they've got him on the murders and he confesses to the murders.
0: Let's go back to Salt Lake City. Is there a way now that you would have been more easily able to track and go if that was there and this attack was over here, to just kind of map that out so that you get the pattern emerging earlier? And I'm asking that not just to say, hey, somebody should have solved it earlier, but also if I was in Salt Lake City and my elderly parent had died in a similar area, I'd be wanting to know, hey, you guys, aren't you kind of mapping this guy who seems to have a territory that he works within?
1: In those days, the pin mapping that was going on honestly was sticking a pin in the map and trying to then tie those pins to each other. And it was often done with yarn and other kinds of things as we started to put it together. This was just in the beginning days when we were really starting to use GIS and using maps and City of Salt Lake was actually one of those that was in the forefront. So it was still a process of digitally putting a pin on the map instead of today where so much is done in a very automated way. Back then they were physically putting the points where those crimes were occurring. Just by visualizing the location they would have started to see some patterns emerging they would have been able to look at things like public transportation and other kinds of things that are really important in moving from one place to another. One of the things that we have today at our fingertips that is much more easy to interrogate and understand is electronic data of things like parolees and probationers who are on paper for sexual assaults or homicides or burglaries and if then we could have and of course, hindsight so wonderful, but if we could have been able to even see that, hey, who were the recent parolees and what was their victim selection process like, they could have quickly identified that here's a guy who just came out of prison and then all of a sudden all these old ladies start turning up dead.
0: I imagine today then, if there was a pattern emerging like that, that asked every death to be more closely investigated if it was in a small place like that.
1: You're absolutely right. And the thing that gets so intriguing to investigators, and I think to everyone, Tori, is this mindset of how could someone in their right mind do this? Well, number one, they're not in their right mind because of their psychopathy and the fact that they think killing people is a good idea. But I I wanted to just share a comment that Troyer made to me one day in the prison as we were talking I leaned back in my chair and he said, you're having a hard time understanding this, aren't you? And he said, well, let me put it to you this way. Let's say you hate your brother-in-law. And then he paused and he said, which incidentally, I do hate my brother-in-law. He said, but my mother loves my brother-in-law. And he said, in my mind, I hate my brother-in-law so much that I want to kill my brother-in-law, but I know how much that would hurt my mother if I killed him because she loves him so much. He said, how do I resolve my dilemma, Mike? The only way that psychopath could solve the problem was he said, I only have one choice. I would have to kill my mother so I don't break her heart. Then I can kill my brother-in-law.
0: And then he's looking for substitute mothers.
1: Yeah, that's the psychopathy of a serial killer.
0: So the next territorial predator that we're going to talk about today is John Wayne Glover. Tell us about him, because he was living on the rich North Shore of Sydney when he killed a lot of people. He was a pie salesman. He always went to the same area. So he was sticking to a beat, wasn't he?
1: You know, he did end up in that very upscale part of Sydney, but before that, this was just a commoner. Yeah, He actually hails from England, and dating back to his youth, he had a lot of petty crimes against him for theft and robberies that were just what we call strong-armed robberies in the States, grabbing a purse or something and running away with it. He drops out of school at a young age, and he, he joins the Army. And we see this sometimes with people where they're trying to just have this macho kind of attitude, but he gets dishonorably discharged from the British Army, very quickly for, again, more theft crimes. And somehow he figures out how to immigrate to Australia in 1957. Oh, Mike, in
0: 1957, we would let anyone in. We called them the 10-pound poms, and we basically- (laughs) Really? Yeah, they just paid 10 pounds to sail over here from England. We needed a lot of workers. We were setting up a lot of factories around the place, and you could bring your whole family over and you know, basically just grab a big bit of land in Australia.
1: You are much more careful today, I can say, having had the opportunity to work with uh, your law enforcement across the country. But this guy goes on, and once he gets into Melbourne, uh, he gets convicted of a couple of more things. And actually, he also gets convicted of several counts of larceny in Victoria, But then we see him starting to escalate a little bit. And by 1962, he's getting convicted for sexual assaults of women and uh, indecent exposure and attempts to commit bodily harm. So we see this guy who's starting to progress and starting to emerge as a a problem. He uh, then meets this light of his life. And her parents invite them to come and live with them in this upscale neighborhood in the Sydney metropolitan area in Mossman. And there, all of a sudden, this kid from the sticks in England is feeling like he's among the rich and wealthy uh, living in this area. And for a very short period of time, everything seems to be going well. But he starts to have some problems with family dynamics and other kinds of things.
0: Well, I wonder if he felt a bit as though he's married above his station He is this kind of scruffy guy from Wolverhampton and now is in this very posh area, living in a posh house with a posh mother-in-law who maybe didn't think that he was good enough for her little daughter.
1: Yeah, you know, that seems to be kind of a resonating theme the rest of his life, doesn't it? And so he ends up having to take this traveling salesman job selling pies around the region. And uh, I suspect that the mother-in-law was constantly saying, yeah, why can't he provide? He's living in our house.
0: Right. And as a pie salesman back then, I mean, you were literally just driving around to different places, taking orders and dropping off orders. So this guy who's building this resentment, particularly towards older women, because he didn't like his mum much either, but now he hates his mother-in-law. He has the opportunity to, I guess, drive around different places, all in the same area, that lovely North Shore, and has a reason to be, well, he went to nursing homes, right?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And then he ends up volunteering even at, I think it's called the Senior Citizen Society. And about this time that he's doing this, all of a sudden he experiences a whole bunch of tragedy in his personal life. His mother gets breast cancer and dies. He gets breast cancer. Now, that's relatively rare for men. And it results in him having some additional kinds of problems. In fact, I think he even uh, had to have his testicles removed and some other things. So he starts to...
0: Oh, I mean, I can feel guys out there going, oh, yeah, ow. You know, you can see how he's starting to feel emasculated.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because we, in the profiling world, we talk about that as being kind of a triggering event where things start to happen. And then to add insult to the injury, his wife picks up, takes their two daughters, files for divorce, and moves to New Zealand. And all of a sudden, this guy is on his own, and he's filled with anger and frustration and doubt and fear. And then we start seeing his crime start to happen.
0: Talk us through that, because like with all these serial predators, you start to see both a geographical pattern emerge, but also the demographic pattern emerge. Geographically, it was the Nice north shores, suburbs of Sydney, very leafy, very affluent. And demographically, it was older women, maybe, who looked a little bit like his mother-in-law.
1: Well, you know what? That's been a real interesting question. And I haven't seen a picture of his mother. But here's a 56-year-old man at this point. So, you know, in most cases, we don't look at someone at that age, uh, even older into my age, of where we would feel in any way threatened by them. But all of a sudden, he starts to really focus in on elderly women. But now, we start to think, and we maybe have been influenced by some of the psychologists and others who have suggested this, but we see this tie to his mother-in-law and an anger that he's feeling and the loss of his mother, maybe some resentment with his mother regarding this cancer that he now is facing. And all of a sudden, he starts going out and hunting for elderly victims.
0: I don't know if you've been to Mosman around that area, and I, I think the leafy suburbs people would think, "Oh, that wouldn't happen to people here," so that they may be wary. Because I think he started following some women home.
1: That's exactly right, Tori. In fact, I, and, and yes, I have been to those areas. Thankfully, I've been able to work with law enforcement all throughout Australia. I've had the opportunity to go into each of those communities in at least the major cities in every state within your country. And I've been able to kind of get a feel of things and a a sense of the environment. And so even when I looked on the maps, uh, as we started plotting out where all of these homicides occurred, it was really kind of nice because I recognized landmarks. I recognized where I caught the train to go up to the mountains and and, uh, enjoy a Sunday afternoon and All of a sudden, in 1989, we have this kind of a pre-murder event where he robs a woman named Margaret Todd Hunter, and he gets $209 is all. This is an aggravated robbery where he physically assaults her and takes her money. And this interesting signature happened in the way he assaults, but then we see an interesting signature mark in what he does every time he gets the money. And I think you've uh, read up a little on that, haven't you?
0: Yeah, so he goes straight to the pokies. You call them slot machines, right? At the RSL Club, which is the Returned and Services League, which is a not uncommon place to go. But I did read that he possibly got a thrill out of murdering, you know, an elderly woman, taking a fairly insubstantial amount of cash, and then going down to the RSL. And then he would like buying drinks for other older women there.
1: This is one wacky guy.
0: But he quickly created that habit of I go here and then I go here, which I found really, really interesting because you would think he'd be thinking, oh, I shouldn't set a pattern because the guys with their little pin maps, they're going to work it out. But he just was driven to.
1: You know, and sadly, in this case, it took a long time to work it out because he then uh, shortly after... It appears assaults a woman named Florence Broadhurst, a 78-year-old uh, artist.
0: A name that will be very familiar to Australians, I think. She's she's still quite well-known today.
1: Yeah, now why is that?
0: So she's quite a famous designer. And I was like, Florence, yeah, Florence Broadhurst. So he was moving in some pretty high circles, actually. Maybe it's just a factor of being in Mosman. But you would think normally a man like Glover wouldn't come into contact with a woman like Broadhurst. But he knew her.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, he denies ever having anything to do with her death, which I find interesting and yet I guess not too surprising, but but it's only a short time later, March 1st in 1989, that he sees an 82-year-old woman named Gwendolyn Mitchell Hill who's walking down the street. And he makes sure that he takes enough time to go back to his vehicle And he pulls out a hammer and he tucks it in under his belt line. And he follows her to her apartment over on uh, Military Road. And as she's opening the door, he comes up from behind her and strikes her with that hammer. Think about the blunt force trauma from a hammer when you're nailing a a nail to the wall. He assaults this woman violently and really acts out a lot of uh, aggression and, and overkill in this assault then he ends up taking a hundred dollars, and he goes to the RSL immediately after
0: to have his little celebration, but also maybe to self-congratulate that you know, as he spends that money, you know, puts some of the pokies, buys maybe a shandy for another older lady. He's kind of like, look at me, they can't catch me. And I was reading that his you know, his poor family always said that he'd later he'd watch the police announcements on TV and be like, yeah, they can't catch me. So he, I guess he got complacent but he was caught.
1: Yeah, he he goes on and he commits uh, quite a few others.
0: Well, we don't even really know how many, right?
1: So here's a guy who goes on and he continues like every couple of months committing another homicide. They're all in a very similar kind of pattern because he's already pummeled them with this hammer. They most likely are already dead, but that's not enough for a, a sadist and a predator like this. He then has to kind of ceremoniously remove their pantyhose and then strangle them with their own pantyhose. And in in one particular case, it appears that he's just even more aggressive than normal and leaves a lot more damage than in other cases. But then he ends up posing these victims. He stacks the shoes nicely to the side. If they have a cane, he puts the cane down very nicely uh, next to it. But we see him reporting this pattern over and over again as he commits these assaults. And so we would refer to those as signature aspects in the case. And a signature is different than an MO, a modus operandi. Where a um, MO would be something that's kind of necessary to complete the crime. A homicide to kill someone would be, you know, part of what's necessary in order to complete that crime. But signature is much different because it's a quirky little thing that makes no difference in the crime, but it's just something that the offender has to do to satisfy some kind of weird itch that they've got inside. And for him, It was, maybe it was fantasizing that he actually was having some kind of escapade and removing their clothing. Uh, Maybe it was a completely different reason, but we see this repeated over and over again. And then we see him start to escalate and start to sexually assault victims in the care centers and other places, which leads to his arrest.
0: Now, can I tell you a little story about some of the visits that he did? So the cops were starting to get interested, and I think they had some hints about him. Somebody had spotted him behaving suspiciously around one nursing home, and so investigators were going into nursing homes and saying, we've got this sketch of this guy. Do you know who he is? And in one nursing home, a woman there said, oh, is he a pie salesman? And the investigator goes, yeah, yeah, he's a pie salesman. Do you know him? And she went, "Uh." Yeah, is that is that John Wayne Glover? And the investigator went, "Yes, yes, it is." Thinking, "Woohoo, we've got a positive ID." And the woman then goes, uh, "That's my husband."
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so that's an interesting thing about the small territory, isn't it? You know, you're putting those pins in the map, and sometimes one pin accidentally hits another pin. They think it's sort of a breakthrough, but then she, of course, goes and tells her husband that they're hunting for him. So that leads us to. The place where he got caught when he went to Joan Sinclair's house. And now this was a slightly different one because he seemed to know her. So he went up and knocked on the door and went in.
1: Yeah, that really is an interesting one. Some of it described it as a platonic relationship that he has with this 60-year-old divorcee. But he goes inside. Police are staking him out at this point. So they're following his every move and watching him. But the way in which she greets him at the door makes the officers relax. And this is not a judgment on the officers. I think who wouldn't, but many hours start to pass by and the officers start to get a little hinky because something just doesn't feel right. There's nothing to support. He could have stayed there all day with a legitimate relationship and, and all of that would have been, you know, fine. But for some reason, the cops feel this sense of urgency that they need to get up to the door and just determine what's going on in there and make sure everything's okay. Well, they use this great guys. There's a dog barking in the neighborhood, and they come up with this strategy that, hey, we're going to use the dog and go knock on the door and see if these people have a dog in hopes that, We can get a determination.
0: They just wanted to get a police head in the door where this guy was because they sort of thought he knew the woman, but it was taking too long, and they realized maybe we shouldn't have just sat outside all that time.
1: And as they start looking around, they peek around the backyard, and they get a look inside the window, and there they see part of her body exposed, and that gives them... The probable cause to do what we we call in the states an exigent search or an emergency search based on the safety of someone and they go in and find her deceased and then they locate him in the bathtub
0: but he's not quite dead yet so he's he brought along a bottle of whiskey so that sort of fits with him going to visit a friend and then his he's killed his friend Joan, and then he in the bottle of whiskey and i did hear it suggested that maybe drugs And they find him in the bathtub, but he's still alive. When he gets to Lithgow Prison and is confessed, he keeps hinting that maybe there's more.
1: Absolutely. And you know what, Tori? I believe without much reservation that there are definitely more victims and that these, in his case, that there were more that he didn't report. If it's okay, I want to just share... A comment that was made by a serial killer to me who actually was a serial killer who selected elderly victims as his preferential victim. This one was really interesting because at the end of our two-day interview uh, with this particular serial killer, I asked him about how he felt about God and forgiveness if you walked through the pearly gates and you saw the last victim that you killed, what would your reply be or your response be to that individual? And he says, well, I, I guess I'd have to walk up to him and say something like, I, you know, if you're mad at me, I guess I could understand that or something. Or if you're still holding a grudge, I could understand that. It was not in his psyche or in his soul to say, I'm sorry. And as we talked I stopped and I said, if you were released from prison today, what's the first thing that you'd do? And a slight smile came across his face and he said, I'd go out and I'd kill an old lady.
0: Well, that guy's never going to see any pearly gates as far as I'm concerned. One thing we should make sure that we do is send people to the website, mappingevil.com.au. And also you're going to be able to have a look at a map of how this was all set out, about how this guy worked through those leafy northern suburbs, shores. Mike, thank you so much for this latest episode of Mapping Evil with Mike King. We'll be back again very soon, but for now, thank you to today's sponsor, Esri Australia, whose mapping solutions help public safety agencies across the country to predict and fight crime, track the crims and keep us safe. Um, You can also get a free trial of the Esri software. So go to mappingevil.com.au again. There's all sorts of goodness. Go and have a look at the website for heaps more information. Come back to us for the next episode, Mike Thank you again so much for your nuanced insight into how to understand a murderer and how to work out how they find their victims, how they interact with them.
1: Oh, yes. And uh, I just look forward to coming back again and, and we'll take off with the next case. I look forward to
0: having fun talking murder with you again, Mike King. Thank you. Thanks, Tori. If you have found the content covered in this podcast, Distressing, support is available from Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you have information about any unsolved crime, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or go to crimestoppers.com.au. This is a bowstead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Tori Shepard and Mike King. Sound designed by Fig Media with editing support from Kim Douglas, Gabby Patterson, Circa 3 and Podbooth Studios. Artwork by Superscript and our executive producers are Raquel Jackson and Alicia Kuperitsis. And finally... This production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia.